It is Monday, November 6th, 2017. Yesterday morning at New Testament Christian Fellowship in Claremont, North Carolina, I had the privilege of preaching message number 107 in this study on Revelation series that began almost five years ago. I believe it was January of 2013. And for the first time in this long series, I neglected to turn on my voice recorder. And the backup GoPro camera that was filming the service strangely malfunctioned. So in order to avoid a gaping hole in this Revelation series, I've decided to preach this message again. This time sitting in my office here at Foolproof Gospel Ministries, I've got a nice hot cup of Wake Up America Patriot Blend coffee that I ordered from InfoWarsLife.com. Now this was expensive and I had my doubts about it, but I've got to say it's worth every penny of the $17 I paid for this one pound of coffee. This is good coffee. And we're coffee snobs here in this house. I've also got me some seltzer water to get me through this next hour or so of preaching. And there's no constraints of time here sitting in my office. So I pray this message taken from Revelation 16, beginning with verse 8, will prove a blessing to you in this very long and drawn out series. Since we began this study almost five years ago with chapter 1, verse 1, in the book of Revelation, we have been able to cross-reference on multiple occasions every single book in God's Word, the Bible. And that's a blessing because when we study the Scriptures, we ought to be those that allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So today we're going to be all over the Bible, as we should be in our quest to understand what God would have us learn from this last book of the Bible. So many talk about Revelation being so difficult to understand in such difficult language and allegory, and they want to spiritualize everything. But when Scripture is read in its plain context and interpreted with Scripture, and we read it and understand it according to the outline that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself laid out there in Revelation chapter 1, John was told to write down the things he had seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. When we stick to Jesus' outline, this is really one of the plainest and easiest books in all of Scripture to understand. There's no dark secret here. There's no dark mystery. There's nothing new here. What John is writing down here, what John is being shown in his vision is nothing new. It's just the same things that were shown to the Old Testament prophets. It's the Holy Spirit's commentary on what was already written and already prophesied there in the Old Testament. Nothing new. Nothing new. Since I preached yesterday morning, a very unfortunate and terrible tragedy took place in Sutherland Springs, Texas, where a left-wing, radical, atheistic, fool, wicked young man, went into a Baptist church and gunned down the congregation during a morning service. I believe the last count I saw was 26 dead, another 20 wounded. I'm 100% certain this fool who gunned down those 
believers is no longer an atheist. In fact, I'll say praise God. Praise God He is awaiting His eternal sentence at this moment in a devil's hell and that true justice will be served for these murders before a great white throne, before Him from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, as it tells us there in Revelation 21. Those believers who were murdered yesterday, who were slaughtered in cold blood, are now present with the Lord. And they will participate in the judgment of this wicked young man. They will participate in that judgment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the saints will judge the world and even judge angels. And this little cowardly punk, his knees will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ just before he is cast forever into a lake of fire. You realize that that lake of fire spoken of at the end of Revelation, that's not hell. Hell's just a holding cell. Hell's like God's county jail. The lake of fire is the eternal lake of damnation. It's like God's state pen. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 30 that the Lord Himself is the one who kindles that fire in that eternal lake of damnation with the breath of His mouth. And when the wicked such as this man are cast into that lake of fire, my friends, the scriptures say that the righteous will applaud. It's very sad that this is the country we now live in. Christians worshiping within the walls of a church are no longer safe. This is no longer a place where Christians can escape persecution. It has been for quite some time going back to the colony of Jamestown and even before that, Plymouth Rock, but it's not any longer. I'm going to tell you this, people. The blood of those Christians slaughtered yesterday in Sutherland, Texas is also on the hands of some others. It's not only on the hands of that murderous, wicked devil who's now in hell. It's also on the hands of that devil, Barack Obama. It's on the hands of the she-witch, Hillary Clinton, the Democrats and the Republicans in Washington, D.C., the mainstream media in this country, all of whom have fomented this left-wing, anti-God, anti-Jesus Christ hatred in this country at least for the past nine years. There's also I'm going to tell you who also has blood on their hands, and I'm not ashamed to say it. There is blood also on the hands of every school administrator, town council member, every college coach, county sheriff, every late local and state government official who over the last few years have caved in fear to some atheist organization that has threatened a lawsuit because of a cross, a Ten Commandments monument, Maybe a halftime prayer, a bumper sticker, or the mere mention of a scripture verse. You cowards out there, many of you who claim to be Christian, you didn't even stand up to these threats. You didn't even put up a fight. You didn't even attempt to stand in the gap for the word of God. All you cared about was a lawsuit. As a result, these atheists have been emboldened. And the blood from those Christians yesterday is on your hands. 
you would have been far better off without the monuments, without the crosses, without the prayers, without the bumper stickers in the first place. I praise God for the men with guns in that little community down there who shot that wicked little devil. One of those local men was a marksman of sorts. No military background, but he was a marksman and he put a bullet right through the crack in that little devil's body armor. And then two men bravely chased this little demon down and in the end, the big bad atheist, the big, bold, arrogant atheist who thought he knew better than everyone else showed himself the ultimate coward. A coward that puts a bullet through his own head. Bible-believing Christians, we're no longer safe in this country. Surely we didn't expect it to be so always. Bible-believing Christians all over the world have long tasted persecution and we've escaped it. Why should we be any different than that? Often the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. Maybe that day's coming here. This country is no longer an escape from Christian persecution. No longer. It's under the judgment of God. This country is under the judgment of God. But I'm going to tell you something. My message won't change. The hellfire and brimstone preaching you've heard in this study on Revelation, it won't change. And in the spirit of Queen Esther, when she went before the king on behalf of the Jewish people, if I perish, I perish. As we say in Spanish, no me importante. Or in Nepali, malai matlab tzayna. I will say this, however, for those out here who would raid our churches and slaughter our brothers and sisters in Christ, who would terrorize innocent people. I'm going to say this, that I and the believers that I worship with, the believers to whom I preached this message yesterday morning, the believers with whom I fellowship, those with whom I partner in the gospel ministry, we aren't afraid of any atheist. We're not afraid of any Satanist, any liberal, any progressive, any Antifa, any Muslim, any dyke, any ACLU attorney, so-called attorney, any congressman, any gang member, any Democrat, any homo, any tranny, any federal judge, any governor, any false teacher, any social justice warrior, or any virtue signaling fake Christian. We're not afraid of any of you. And none of you have any power over us over the church of the Lord Jesus Christ unless it's given you from above. You have no power, you wicked people. You wicked American government. You wicked politician. You wicked atheist. You have no power over the church of the Lord Jesus Christ unless it is given you from above. I will tell you this, enemies of the gospel... You better think twice before coming to shoot up my local church. You see, I take the warning of King Solomon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 very, very seriously. You see, you'll be in hell before you can even pull a trigger 
if you try to do what was done yesterday in our local church, and I guarantee it won't be because the preacher has to pull out his gun. There are those of us Christians who yet remain that take Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 very, very seriously, not just in our churches, but on the streets and in matters involving complete strangers, even our enemies. You see, you wicked people in this country fomenting hatred and dividing people one against another, you better think twice before pulling out your knife before drawing your gun on innocence, before messing with a little helpless child, before robbing an elderly person, before harassing a Jewish person, before tormenting a black man for the color of his skin, or trying to rape a woman, or threatening a street preacher, or playing the knockout game on a bystander. See, one of us might be standing close by. And if necessary, we will send you straight to hell to, quote, deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, unquote. The God many in this country mock and say don't even exist is a God of mercy. He's merciful in that He never sends judgment without warning. Amos 3 verse 7 makes that clear. We Christians are merciful too. We've put up with a lot over the centuries. We're merciful people. We'll warn you first. We'll even pray for you and offer you the gift of the gospel. But we will defend those who are given over to death and ready to be slain. And we will stand in the gap for our brethren. brethren. And if you don't heed this warning, your blood is on your own pate. This is the country we live in, folks. Oh, that God would give us one politician, just one, somewhere in Washington. Like the king of Nineveh when he responded to the preaching of Jonah. Oh, if there were but one to respond to God's judgment on this country like the king of Nineveh did when Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nobody cares. We had an eclipse that crossed this country from coast to coast not long ago. And ever since then, we've had some of the worst hurricanes in American history. We've had the worst mass shooting in American history. We've heard, had the worst church shooting in American history. We've had tornadoes popping up in late October and November and destroying property all over this area. But nobody cares. It's forgotten. And we move on. Yet ye did not return unto me, saith the Lord. It's what God wrote to the people of Israel through the prophet Amos when he sent warning after warning after warning. Yet ye did not turn unto me, saith the Lord. And because you did not turn, God told the people of Israel, prepare to meet thy God. America, you better prepare to meet your God. Christian, are you ready to meet your God? These are the days we live in. The things that I have been talking about from Revelation are at the doorstep. Praise God, the local church is not appointed unto wrath. Judgment's coming to the world. 
God is a God of wrath. Jesus Christ is coming back soon and boy is He angry. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God. While we still have time, we need to preach the gospel. We need to carry the good news of the gospel to the world. We need to take a stand for what's right and not allow truth to be fall, uh, not allow truth to fall in the street. And we need to preach the word of God without fear and without shame and without apology. We need to keep worshiping in our local churches. Keep it up with the health. This country needs hellfire and brimstone preaching from Bible-believing preachers more than anything else. Doesn't need any more social programs or social justice warriors. Doesn't need any more promises by politicians. Notwithstanding all the negative news, all the tragedies, all the death, all the sadness, God is still in the business of saving individuals and the light still shines in the darkness. I shared yesterday morning about how I recently returned from a cross-country coal portage journey. When I pulled back into my driveway here in Vail, North Carolina, my odometer was just under 10,000 miles from when I reset it, leaving this same place six weeks earlier. In six weeks, I had the privilege of driving close to 10,000 miles. We were able to comb 42 indoor shopping malls around this country between here in California and back. And in 23 of those 43 malls, there were opportunities for, in, for declaring the Word of God, for giving the Word of God to Israelis, to Jewish people. That's about a 54% success rate. I think that's pretty good. Last year when I was involved with a similar coal portage journey up to Alaska and back, uh, it was around the same success rate. In fact, if you put those two trips together, we found opportunities to be a witness to the Jew first in 42 out of 79 indoor shopping malls. That's a 53% success rate. I praise God for that. On this particular trip, we were able to give out 30 copies of the Tanakh in Hebrew and English. The same Bible that Jesus and the apostles preached from. The same foundation upon which our New Testament is built. The same gospel, the same God, the same promises, the same prophecies. We were able to give these out to people who, by and large, their knowledge of the Tanakh is limited to what they've heard some rabbi read in a synagogue or some family member hastily read over on a holiday or at a Shabbat meal. What a privilege it is to distribute the printed Word of God. We were also able to give out 23 Hebrew Berit Chadashahs, or New Testaments, to Jewish people along this journey. In Jeremiah, God promises the house of Israel and the house of Judah that he will give them a new covenant. That is Berit Chadashah, Haberit Chadashah in Hebrew. And that's exactly what the New Testament is. In fact, it's printed in Hebrew on the front of these Bibles, Haberit Chadashah. God said he would give them a new covenant and he did. What a blessing it was to distribute these as well and to encourage those receiving them to read and discover that the New Testament is far different than what they've been told. It's not full of Catholics and popes and priests and saints and Mother Mary and, and uh, 
uh, Hail Marys and 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 uh, cardinals and and all this Catholic garbage. It's not full of that at all. It's a Jewish book written by Jewish eyewitnesses as concerns the Jewish Messiah and as concerns the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Praise God for those New Testaments that went out. We also had the privilege. The unique thing about Jewish ministry, I've said it a million times, is that it puts you in the path of a lot of different types of Gentiles. We had the privilege of giving out 14 Bibles along this trip to Gentiles. One was a family that had fled the hurricane in Miami, Florida. There was a young man who was deaf from India, some, some folks from Nepal, a Bangladeshi Muslim, a woman and her handicapped child from Sri Lanka. There was a young man from Egypt, a group of five young people from Iran. So it was a blessed trip. I'm excited to be headed over to Nepal in about a week to continue the work and to help train some Nepali believers in how to share the gospel with Jewish people and how to have Shabbat meals in their home as a way to bless the Israelis. So the work continues. I encourage you to visit our website, fpgm.org. We're also known as Zeraim, which is the Hebrew word for seeds, Zeraim Coal Portage Board, and read about what God's doing and support the work. The last time I preached on Revelation, we were in chapter 16, and we discussed the first, the second, and the third vile judgments. I've said it many times in this series, the seven vile judgments are the seventh trumpet judgment. And the seventh, seventh trumpet judgments are the seventh seal judgment. So all of these judgments are connected back to the seven sealed scroll that only the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, only the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open. There in Revelation 5, it's the church there in heaven that praises the Lamb of God. Thou art worthy to open the scroll because thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The church is there in heaven when the Lamb begins to open this scroll, having been raptured out prior to the onset of Daniel's 70th week. And by the time we get into these vile judgments, the scroll, the title deed of the earth is almost completely open. You see, the title deed of the earth belongs to the kinsman redeemer. Adam was given stewardship over this planet. The title deed was his until he lightly esteemed his birthright, until he despised his birthright and was deceived in the Garden of Eden and gave it over to the serpent, to Satan. Satan, therefore, it's the God of this world. But at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed the earth back. He purchased it back. And with these judgments, with the opening of this title deed, He's coming to take what is His. You see, Jesus Christ has purchased it back, the kinsman redeemer. Satan's still the power, the prince of the air, the God of this world, the God of this age. But the kinsman redeemer is coming to take what is his, and make all of his enemies his footstool. And by the time these vile judgments are on the scene, we're toward the end of the seventh seal. As the seventh seal is open, then come the seven trumpet judgments. And with the seventh trumpet judgment, then come judgments come the vile judgments. 
So basically, this title deed is laid open. Laid open. And that means the king is coming soon to take what is his, as we'll see in Revelation chapter 19. Last time we looked at the first three vile judgments, the first being a noisome and grievous sore that falls upon those that have the mark of the beast. Then we see the sea being turned to blood and every living soul in the sea dying. The sea reeking as the blood of a dead man. And then with the third angel, we have the vial poured out upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they too became blood. And then we have that heavenly confirmation, just as authoritative, just as powerful, just as true as the confirmations that came down from heaven in the life of Jesus Christ. When God spoke from heaven at His baptism, when God spoke from heaven at the transfiguration, when God spoke from heaven there as he made his way to Jerusalem. This heavenly confirmation in verse chapter 16 talks of the wicked on the earth that have shed the blood of saints and prophets and therefore God has given them blood to drink because they deserve it. We don't like to talk about people deserving judgment or people deserving hell. But the bottom line is we deserve hell. We deserve judgment. And the wicked who have shed the blood of innocence deserve blood to drink as judgment. Praise God through Jesus Christ we can taste the mercy of God. God's mercy is not giving us what we deserve. And praise God, in Jesus Christ, we can taste the grace of God. God giving us what we don't deserve. But here the wicked who have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets are given blood to drink. And as this heavenly witness says, because they're worthy, because they deserve it. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. God's not some sky fairy that exists to make your dreams to come true. He is mighty. And true and righteous are his judgments. This brings us to verse 8. In verse, verse 9, I want to look today at the fourth vile judgment. By this point, we're very near the end of the tribulation period. In fact, the coming of Christ to split the Mount of Olives. When Israel finally recognizes their transgression and calls from him, he will come as Enoch said, as recorded in the, in the epistle of Jude with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. As is recorded there in Zechariah 14, his, his uh, foot will split the Mount of Olives. As is recorded there in Revelation 1 and in Revelation 19, all, every eye will see him. We're very close to this point. We're very close to the gathering at Tel Megiddo, Armageddon. In fact, these judgments are so earth-shattering, so earth-shaking that we couldn't be talking about much time. The earth couldn't survive a long period of time with the onset of these judgments. So we may be seeing events that are taking place with these vile judgments just over a matter of weeks. Not, no way a matter of months and certainly not a matter of years. We're at the end here. Chapter 16, verses 8 and 9 reads, 
And if I'm preaching, you're going to always hear me read from a King James Bible. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. This judgment, this fourth vial, it's not a bowl as written in some modern translations. It's funny to me, these so-called Greek scholars who think they know everything and correct everything the King James translators did, they don't even know the English language. The English word vile was derived directly from the Greek word file that is used here. It's a vile, not a bowl. The difference between the Bible scholar today and the Bible scholars that were involved in translating the King James Bible is those were men in those days who actually feared God and believed this book to be something other than an average book, believed in its power, believed it to be supernatural, believed God had inspired it and preserved it. Half the crowd today that wants to stand in judgment on a King James text and produce another Bible that they can put out and get the proceeds from when it comes to their copyright. These guys don't fear this book. They don't believe this book. They're critics. King James translators were a generation away from those who paid for their Christian testimony with their lives. There were men on that committee that it is said of them if they had been present at the Tower of Babel, they could have been translator general and solved the problem. Men that feared God, some of them did pay for it with their lives. They were later poisoned by secret Catholic agents who hated the translation of God's Word into the vernacular. It's easy to get off the subject here sitting at my desk. I could preach for hours. I don't have to look at people getting impatient or watching their watches or even worry about a buffet line at some restaurant that somebody needs to get to. We don't have to worry about that at our little house church anyway. We share a meal together every Sunday after the preaching of the word, and there's great freedom to preach. I praise God for that, for those believers. What we see here with this fourth vile judgment is great scorching heat from the sun. So many today go on and on about global warming and about how man has caused global warming and how man has the power and the potential to destroy the planet. This is true global warming right here. True global warming. And it's not a fraction of a degree over a hundred year period. It's many degrees instantly and it's from the hand of God. God gives the sun power to scorch men with heat. We see the sun affected already or we have seen it affected already in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 6, verse 12, the sixth seal judgment describes the sun becoming black as sackcloth of hair and the moon becoming as blood. These are similes here, and I think it's a result of a nuclear winter. I think it's the result of nuclear war, the covering of the sun. Blacking it out, blotting it out. Chapter 8, verse 12, with the fourth trumpet judgment, we see a third of the sun smitten. The light diminished. The calendar, the day, the day and the night all mucked up. And here we see the sun intensified. 
great heat that scorches men. Nothing is said about heat in the sixth seal and the fourth trumpet. kind of proves that these judgments are not permanent. They're temporary and passing, meant to get men's attention. The sun hasn't fallen out of the sky by the end of the end of Revelation. In fact, it's intensified here. I think about how with that fourth trumpet judgment when a third of the sun is spent. You see, when God poured out his plagues upon the land of Egypt, when Israel uh, was ready to come out, when God poured out those ten plagues upon Pharaoh, Exodus tells us with the last plague that the plagues were a culmination of God's judgment, not only upon the Egyptians, but upon the gods of Egypt. The ten plagues were, frankly, insults and mockeries by the creator of heaven and earth against these false gods. And an argument could be made that these seal and trumpet and and, uh, vile judgments are that very thing against the false gods of modern man. When I think of the fourth trumpet and how a third of the sun was smitten and the day and night was all messed up, God was attacking two primary false gods of man as he exists in this time period. Daniel tells us that Antichrist will change the calendar, change times and change seasons. That's how arrogant and prideful he'll be. And people will worship him. They'll think he's some sort of messiah. He'll change the calendar. God mocks that calendar when he smites a third of the sun and a third of the moon and day and dark are all messed up. God mocks that calendar. He also mocks the God of the personal schedule. How many of us are in bondage to the false gods of personal schedules and calendars? We got to be here at this time. We got to do this at this time. We got to get this done. We got to get that done. Encumbered, encumbered, encumbered. The personal schedule is a false god, my friends, and God mocks it when he takes out a third of the sun and messes the day and the night up with the fourth trumpet judgment. But here, with the fourth vile judgment, we see the sun intensified. We see it darkened, we see it smitten, and now we see it intensified. Some would say that the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the vile judgments are just repetitious. It's just John recording the same symbolic events three different times. Recaps of the same events. That's ridiculous. A very simple plain reading of the text tells us these are not repeats of the same events. The sun is darkened under one. It's smitten under another, and then with this vial, it's intensified. And the sun is certainly not a dark symbol for some dead Roman emperor that persecuted a handful of Christians 1,900 years ago. There are actually people out here claiming the name of Christ who profess to be Bible scholars. Some of them are even bold to go out and share the gospel on the streets and be a faithful witness who would lead us to believe that revelation has already been fulfilled in history. And that judgments like this fourth vial, this sun uh, that is intensified with some dead Roman emperor that persecuted a handful of Christians in a little corner of the Roman Empire. I don't know what other response to such nonsense. There's only one response, a giant LOL. Laugh out loud. No, there's no reason to think that this is other than literal. 
Here, heat is intensified by the command of God and men, the men, the wicked men that remain on this planet are literally slow roasted by their creator. Friends, there's nothing new here. This isn't some new thing described only in the book of Revelation. In fact, what we see here in the last book of the New Testament with regard to the burning heat of the last days is simply commentary. Commentary from the last book of the New Testament concerning already written prophecy from the last book of the Old Testament. I want to turn right now to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. I love these King James Bibles that are printed by the First Baptist Church of Milford, Ohio, the Bearing Precious Seed Ministries. It's got good, soft leather. They're very durable. They're great for street preaching. It's a great place to get a good, durable, quality King James Bible with a leather covering, and in doing so, you can support a ministry that uh, values the printed word and the dissemination thereof. That's Bearing Precious Seed. These are printed by the First Baptist Church of Milford, Ohio. You can find them online. Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. It is written, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. The prophet Malachi, long before John the Apostle wrote of this day, this day that will burn as an oven when men will be slow roasted and the wicked will leave neither root nor branch. The fourth vial is the beginning of that day. And of course it culminates when the Lord Jesus Christ steps out of heaven. Zechariah tells us that the enemies gathered against him there at Armageddon, that their eyes will literally melt out of their sockets, their tongues will melt in their mouth, and they'll melt before him. This day that burns like an oven referenced here is right before the glorious promise, the glorious news of verse 2 here in chapter 4. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness, the Son of Righteousness despised by the wicked, the author of scorching heat against the wicked, to those that fear His name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as, as calves of the stall. Now in context, these prophecies, these promises are given to Israel, the remnant of Israel that remains when Messiah comes to rescue them and to sit on the literal throne of David in fulfillment of prophecies going back to Abraham. Those that fear Him, that source of heat will be healing, will be healing. Praise God from that. So what we see here in Malachi chapter 4 is what John describes with a little more detail 
in Revelation chapter 16, when we think of these horrible future judgments from which I believe the remnant body of Jesus Christ, the church, will escape, the doctrine of a pre-tribulational rapture is biblical. It's not based upon one or two verses. It's not based alone upon 1 Thessalonians 4. It's not some new doctrine that was thrown together by John Nelson Darby or it's not the result of some dreams that a blind girl had in the 1800s. I certainly haven't read any John Nelson Darby on the subject. A pre-tribulational rapture is biblical. And the Scriptures bear witness of it in multiple places. And with Scripture, interpreting Scripture, there's no other conclusion that a sound-minded reader of the Bible could come to. I praise God that those who are born again are not appointed to God's wrath. What we're reading about here in Revelation 16 is God's wrath. Wrath on the world that serves two purposes. To wake up the nation of Israel as to who their Messiah is and judgment upon the wicked. How should we respond now when we read about these future judgments? Should we have an attitude like many Christians have, many Christians regrettably that believe and boast in a pre-trib rapture? Should we share their attitude that says, well, hey, I won't be here. That doesn't affect me. So, you know, that's not my problem. Is that the attitude we should have? Is that how we should respond to these horrible future judgments? I dare say not. In fact, I think the answer to that question is right here in the prophet Malachi. That Malachi in chapter 4 refers to this very fourth vial we've been talking about. If we go back a few verses at the end of chapter 3, three, we'll see what I believe should be a proper response for those that fear the Lord to these horrible judgments. The proper response we should have now. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 read as thus, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him, before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I will make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth not. Here we're, talk, we're told about God having a book of remembrance before Him. A book of remembrance that notes those who, number one, feared the Lord in view of His judgment, and those that thought upon His name in, review, in view of His revealed judgment said God would remember those that feared Him and thought upon His name and that in the day of judgment they would be spared, just like a man spares his own son, and that those spared would return from what they've been spared from and discern between the righteous and the wicked. You know, that's real interesting because the Bible speaks in the New Testament of the church being changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye. You see, the second coming of Christ is very visible. Every eye will see. But what's spoken of for the believer, the dead in Christ that rise first, and we which were alive, are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds. This is in a moment. 
in a twinkling of the eye. It's so fast, it's not even seen. Two will be in the field, one taken or received. Same word used when it says Joseph took Mary to be his wife. And then Jesus talks about the wedding imagery concerning the church. Time and time again, go study what a Jewish wedding is and you've got a map of the church in the end times. It's amazing correlation. There's a reason Jesus used a wedding imagery. Two in the field, one taken, the other left. Two at the grinding stone, one taken, the other left. And what does it mean to be taken? It means to be spared. And then to one day return and judge between good and evil. The New Testament says that when Christ comes, he will come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. And then Paul tells us we will judge the world. We will judge between right and wrong. We will help judge the excuses of men. We'll even judge angels. Those things, same things are encapsulated here for those that fear the Lord in view of His judgment and those that think upon His name. So how do we respond to these judgments now that aren't even reserved for us, Christian? We do it by fearing the Lord. By fearing the Lord and being those that constantly think upon His name. Think upon the seriousness of these judgments upon the wicked. Not those that think about Him on a predetermined schedule 30 minutes every morning. Or for an hour every Sunday morning. Maybe an hour on Wednesday night. No, we need to be those that think upon His name regularly. Is He before our thoughts regularly in everything we do? In every blessing we receive? In every word we speak? And every opportunity we have to preach the gospel. If we'll fear the Lord now and think upon His name now before the judgments come, then we'll be motivated to warn men. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Paul said, we warn men. The fourth vile judgment, this scorching heat, really shouldn't be a surprise. It's no surprise at the end of the tribulation. I'm going to turn over to Isaiah 30. We have some interesting details about the coming millennial kingdom here. I'm going to begin at verse 25 and read through verse 33. And there shall be upon every high mountain and upon every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The great slaughter is when Christ comes back at Armageddon. Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people and healeth the stroke of their wound. The day that the Lord binds up the breach of His people is when Jesus comes back and overthrows Israel's enemies and sets up His kingdom. A literal messianic king on a Jewish throne, the throne of David there in Jerusalem with Jerusalem, the capital of the world and the saints ruling and reigning with the Lord over the entire earth. A day spoken of as the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we're told that in that day, 
In that millennial kingdom, the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter than it is now. You see, we live in a fallen world corrupted by sin, further corrupted and changed following the great cataclysmic event, event which was Noah's flood. What we see now is like wearing a pair of sunglasses at dusk compared to what this world was when God said He looked at everything and saw that it was good. We're living in a garbage can right now. As beautiful as it is in places compared to what this world was in the Garden of Eden and what it will be when it's restored to that state, when the curse is removed in the millennial kingdom. And so what we see from the sun is just a shadow. Our atmosphere can't handle it. Our eyes can't handle it. But when that's restored, the sun will burn seven times brighter than it is now. That awaits the millennial kingdom. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's intensified here toward the end of the tribulation with this fourth vile judgment. In the tribulation, the atmosphere is so torn up that when the sun is intensified to its millennial brightness, the wicked get a taste of the coming glory and they can't handle it. They can't handle the scorching heat. I believe what God does here is He heals and turns up the sun to what it's going to be when King Jesus reigns. And he gives the wicked a taste of that glory. And it scorches them with fire so that they blaspheme God. Much like the name of the beautiful and glorious name of Jesus. The strength and the power that's in the precious name of Jesus when it's preached and it's spoken to those that believe. When it's spoken to a devil or a Democrat, it's like throwing battery acid in the face. The name of Jesus, which is glorious to the blood-bought saints of the living God, is like battery acid in the face to an atheist, a devil, and a Democrat. It's kind of what we see here with the sun. The sun in its glory, as it will be in the millennium, is turned up, but the atmosphere can't handle it. The wicked men can't handle it, and they blaspheme God. It's like battery acid in the face. Kind of like Israel when they went in the promised land. They got a taste of it, and they despised it. If we continue reading... In chapter 30 of Isaiah, it's amazing this map of the tribulation and the millennium. I'm not going to read it all. I'll go down to verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord cometh from far, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue is a devouring fire. And his breath as an overflowing stream shall reach to the midst of the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of vanity. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. Ye shall have a song as in the night, when a holy solemnity is kept. And gladness of heart as when one goeth with a pipe to come into the mountain of the Lord, to the mighty one of Israel. And the Lord shall cause His glorious voice to be heard, and shall show the lighting down of His arm with the indignation of His anger, and with the flame of a devouring fire, with scattering and tempest in hailstones. 
What Isaiah describes here is exactly what John describes in the second half of Revelation 19. We have the intensification of the sun, then we have the coming of the king in furious fire and anger. Armageddon says in Revelation that the beast and the false prophet are taken and thrown alive into the lake of fire. Here it says in Isaiah, when the Lord comes burning with anger, for through his voice, verse 31, through the voice of the Lord shall the Assyrian be beaten down, which smote with a rod. And in every place where the grounded staff shall pass, which the Lord shall lay upon him, it shall be with tabrets and harps. And in battles of shaking will he fight with it. For Tophet is ordained of old, yea, for the king it is prepared. For the king of Assyria, here at the end of days, this is Antichrist, the Assyrian, the same one spoken of in Isaiah 10 as the rod of God's anger upon a wicked Israel. It says that God will beat him down, smite him with a rod, and then it speaks of Tophet. Tophet was ordained of old, yea, for the king it is prepared, he hath made it deep and large, the pile thereof is fire and much wood. The breath of the Lord like a stream of brimstone doth kindle it. Here we have Tophet, the lake of fire. And we have the Assyrian, the Antichrist, cast into it. He for whom it is prepared. And that lake of fire is kindled with the breath of God himself. If we ever stop to pause and think that the lake of fire, the destined, what was prepared for the devil and his angels, what was prepared for Antichrist and the false prophet, what will also house the wicked who have rejected the gospel, that fire isn't just there. It is kindled by the breath of God and it never goes out. It's an everlasting burning, Isaiah 66. Here we have the events of Revelation 19 prophesied here in Isaiah 30. We have the intensification of the sun related to, I believe, the fourth vial. And as the sun will be in the millennium, the coming of Christ as described in Revelation 19, the casting of the Antichrist into the lake of fire is all already recorded here in Isaiah 30. Nothing new. Revelation's nothing new. If we interpret Scripture with Scripture, it's easy to understand. In the Old Testament, we have two words used in Hebrew for hell. One is Sheol. Sheol means the pit. I believe it is hell. It's what's referred to as Hades in the Greek. It's hell from which the rich man lifted up his eyes in torments. I believe it's in the heart of the earth. And then we have what's called Tophet, what Jesus referred to as Gehenna in Greek in the New Testament. It's the eternal lake of fire. Gehenna was a valley near Jerusalem in Jesus' day that was used primarily to burn trash. So there was constantly a flame down there. In prior days, the, the wicked Israelites worshiping their false gods and given over to paganism would literally sacrifice their children there on the altars of Molech in the Valley of Gehinnom. In Hebrew, this is called Tophet. It's the same valley. Jesus used it as an image of eternal hell. Here it's eternal, the eternal lake of fire, eternal damnation. And it's kindled by the breath of God. You see, when a man like that wicked little punk who shot up that church yesterday, I won't even say his name. Not even going to say his name. It's no longer important. When he woke up and lifted up his eyes in hell, 
He's only in God's county jail. When you wake up in hell, my friend, dying without the Lord, you haven't even been judged yet. Your spirit is in hell and it will await there until the final judgment. Well, God will, will raise you up, slap you with an eternal body, and then you'll stand before His great white throne. And when you're found guilty, you will be cast into Tophet an eternal lake of fire, like God's state pen. And you got a life, eternal life sentence, and you're never coming out. Death and hell are then cast into the lake of fire, God's penitentiary. Tophet, which was ordained of old for the devil, his angels, and the Antichrist, and the false prophet. But sadly, many will go down that path toward destruction and meet their total, final end. In that place, Revelation 16, verse 9, And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give Him glory. My friends, this is a sad, sad commentary on the human condition. Man's utter depravity. With all that's going on here in the tribulation, a man gets up in the morning and all he has to drink is blood. He goes outside and is scorched with first and second degree burns from the sun. Yet instead of getting right, instead of crying out to God in repentance, he curses and blasphemes God the one who has the power over these plagues, the power to stop them. And you actually think men, some of you actually think men will be crying out for mercy and in repentance in hell? Laugh out loud. Capital L-O-L. And... Do you think the righteous in heaven will be weeping and crying for those in hell when they stand before the king? When justice has been served? When they are in a state of sinlessness with no crime, punishment, no no curse? You think we'll actually be weeping over the righteousness of God? Not a chance. Sad commentary on the human condition. Clarence Larkin was a Baptist preacher that wrote some very interesting books mapping out the scriptures. Nearly a hundred years ago, he wrote an incredible commentary on the book of Revelation. He also wrote a commentary on Daniel. Dispensational truth, rightly dividing the word, the spirit world. These are all books that are treasured here in my library. I don't even like to loan them out. Some of them are out of print, but in Clarence Larkin's commentary on Revelation in describing this fourth vial and the blasphemy accompanied with it, he writes these words. They're very powerful words. Very simple, very powerful. Blessed will those people be who do not live to see this day. Blessed will be those blessed will those people be who do not live to see this day. Praise God, this day is not reserved for the church. It's not reserved for the born-again Christian. Praise God for that. But it is reserved for the wicked. It is reserved for many with whom we regularly come in contact, both Jews and Gentiles. 
Do we not love them enough to warn them? Do we, does our blessing cause us to sit back and hoard it? Or does it motivate us to go out and warn the wicked that they too might escape? Let's move on to verses 10 and 11 here in chapter 16. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. God intensifies the sun and it brings a scorching heat with the fourth vial. And men therefore curse the light. They curse its heat and they curse God. So what does God do? He takes away the light and gives them darkness. And what do they do? They curse Him for the darkness. They curse Him for the light. They curse Him for the darkness. You know, President Trump has nothing on the creator God of the universe. President Trump's one of those guys. He can't do anything right in the minds of the mainstream media, in the minds of the Republicans and Democrats in Congress, and in the minds of a lot of Christians. The man can't do anything right. He does it one way he's condemned. He does it another way he's condemned. He does things that I don't remember presidents ever doing in my lifetime. Speaking out on behalf of persecuted Christians. I don't ever remember the whitehouse.gov website saying that human life begins at conception in my lifetime. Spoken out on behalf of the unborn. Talked about it, has said publicly. In America, we don't worship government, we worship God. And yet he can't do anything right. And yet Christians sit around and find something wrong with that. I mean, the man can't do anything right in the eyes of people. But he doesn't have anything on the Creator God. Because that's the attitude that God's own creation has had about him for 6,000 years. He gives them blessings, they curse it. He gives them judgments to wake them up, they curse it. He gives them light, they curse Him. He gives them darkness, they curse Him. A man is born too short, he curses God, he's not tall. A person's born with dark skin, he curses God, he wants lighter skin. A person's born with white skin, he curses God, he wants darker skin. No. As unjust as the accusations the president has to put up with in this country today, he has nothing on the Lord God. The Lord God made man, and man, all man can do is curse everything God's ever tried to do for him. God sent his only begotten son, gave his own son to pay for the sins of the world, the sins of wicked men that curse God. And men despise it. No. None of us in the malcontent and the mistreatment we've experienced, none of us in the betrayal we've experienced have anything on the Lord Jesus Christ, have anything on God. And yet his arm is outstretched still to a rebellious people. Yet his salvation is still available. This fifth vial judgment's very similar to the ninth plague that God poured out upon the land of Egypt in Exodus chapter 10. In fact, when you look at the vile judgments, every 
other one, the first, the third, the fifth, and the seventh, is a repetition of an Egyptian plague on a worldwide scale. The first vial, the boils and the sores, is a repetition of the sixth Egyptian plague poured out on all the world. In Egypt, it was poured out on man and beast. Here, it's poured out on men only. The third vile judgment, the rivers and fresh waters turned to blood, is the first Egyptian plague, the Nile turning to blood on a worldwide scale. The fifth vial, which is here, darkness over the kingdom of the beast is the ninth plague on a worldwide scale. Darkness was poured out on the house of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt for three straight days. A darkness that could be felt. Here we see it poured out on a worldwide scale on the seat of the beast and over his whole kingdom. And of course we'll see with the seventh vial a great hail. Fire and blood. Like what God did upon Egypt with the seventh plague. Every other vial, a direct repetition on a worldwide scale. That's just the facts. I'm not trying to read anything into that. It's just the facts. Let's turn to Exodus 10 for a minute. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. You ever been in darkness that may be felt? This isn't literary embellishment. There is darkness that may be felt. I used to love exploring caves. There was a cave not far from where I went to college up in Virginia that... Um, okay, that's the, that's the uh, disadvantage of uh, preaching to my computer when a call comes over. It makes noise. That was obviously some uh, sales call. I'm sick and tired of receiving these calls from Melbourne, Florida, and and uh, somewhere in Texas, and somewhere in Washington. I answered, and it's a recorded message. Somebody told me I ought to listen to it, and when it gives me a chance to respond, just breathe heavily into the phone. Somebody told me, a pastor friend of mine told me, they won't ever call you back if you do that. Maybe I should try it. But anyway... Um, Let's read these. Uh, I was talking about darkness that may be felt. We, I used to go to this cave not far from where I went to college, and you had to hike about a mile or so back in the woods to find it, and you came around into this hollow, and there it was with a big gaping hole coming out of the ground, and you had to walk back in there about, I don't know, maybe 100, 200 yards, and then it split. You could go right or left, and in both directions, you had to crawl for 50, 60 feet, and it would open up into a room and you could go back into a maze of hallways and spend hours back there. You know, we always took a little map of the cave that had been mapped out, something I had found in a book in a local library. I've still got a copy of it here in my photo, my, my file cabinet. We'd always write our names in a little sign-in book at the mailbox of the man who owned the property in case, you know, we went in there and never came out. They'd, they'd notice him, somebody looked for us and Several times we went into that cave and explored, and we always got turned around at the same place. Uh, I had heard there was a waterfall and a natural bridge back there, but we never could get back to it because we always came to a drop-off 
way back in there that required ropes to get down and we never had ropes with us. But back in there, we would go into one of these open sandy rooms and we would just turn the lights off and sit there. It was always 55 degrees in that cave. Temperature never really changed. It was a breathing cave so you could fill a draft. That means there was an opening somewhere else. But we'd sit there in that darkness of that cave and it was quiet. And my friends, that was darkness that you could feel. I mean, you could put your hand in front of your face and not even know it was there. And the darkness, you could feel it like you were clothed in it. Sometimes we would just sit there. Sometimes we'd fall asleep and take a nap. We like to go in that cave without even taking a watch because it would mess you up. It would mess your your time up. One time we thought we'd been in there for two, 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 three hours and we got out hoping, expecting to see daylight. We got out when it was dark and when we got back to our watches, we realized we'd been in there seven or eight hours. Only seemed like two. Seven or eight hours clothed in darkness that may be felt is, seems like two or three. So there is a darkness that can be felt. And that's what fell upon the land of Egypt. It says here uh, that um, let's see here. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days they saw not one another neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, if you go over to Exodus 12, 12, I mentioned this earlier. God tells Moses what he's going to do with that last plague. The smiting of the firstborn. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So here we see with the death of the firstborn, a culmination of judgments that wasn't just against the people of Egypt, not just against Pharaoh, but against the gods of Egypt. You see, God through these plagues didn't only judge the people, he mocked the gods of Egypt. He mocked the god of the Nile. He mocked gods that had been symbolized as frogs and flies, the gods of the so-called livestock. Horus and Osiris and these others. Pharaoh, who was considered a god, was mocked and insulted by the Creator Himself with the death of the firstborn. The Egyptian plagues were judgments also upon the false gods of Egypt. They were insults and mockeries of the Holy Creator against false gods. With these vials, I also believe with these vile judgments that in some aspects are very similar to plagues that fell upon Egypt, I believe we have an element in which the false gods of the tribulation man, many of which are the same false gods of modern man today, are not are, are judged as well. Not just the men who worship these false gods, but the false gods as well are judged. And with these vials, they're insulted, and mocked insults and mockeries from the God of heaven against the things 
in which modern man puts his trust. The things in which modern man boasts. The things to which modern man thinks he's entitled. With these vile judgments, we have a giant divine L-O-L. You don't think God laughs at the wicked? You don't think God laughs at those who mock Him and boast in the works of their own hands? Does that not fit your character sketch of God? Well, my friends, that's the God of the Bible. In fact, in one of the most important messianic psalms, these words are written. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? That's the days of the tribulation. People raging, imagining a vain thing that they can actually stop Christ from coming. They can actually stop the anointed one of God from sitting upon a throne. Men think that today. Modern man thinks that today. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And then we go on to read that God will set his Messiah upon his holy hill of Zion and nobody will be able to stop it. And Messiah will break the heathen with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Kiss the sun, my friends. You better kiss the sun now, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Psalm 2, one of the great messianic psalms. And here we see that God laughs at those who are gathered together against him. And here in Revelation 16, the men of the planet are gathered together to blaspheme him. We're going to see that they're gathered together to try to stop Christ and overthrow him when he returns at Armageddon. And these vile judgments, in my opinion, are the Lord laughing from heaven, having men in derision. Mockeries against man-made false gods. The false gods of modern man, just like the Egyptian plagues, were mockeries and insults of the Egyptian gods. You know, think about the first vial. Boils and sores that break out upon those that have the mark of the beast. Those that have been embedded with a mark that's in and on the skin. Undoubtedly related to biometrics and the pinnacle of human technology, which is a nanochip containing all this information that allows men to buy and sell and to be tracked. The pinnacle of human technology. So great, so convenient. And yet upon those that have it falls a grievous sore. A painful sore that breaks out. And what, what is seen as such glorious, convenient, evolved technology proves a curse and a corruption of the human body. A corruption of the system. That first vile judgment is God's insult and mockery against human technology. Human technology is a false god of modern men. We put too much trust in it. I mean, look at the people that lined up recently, that lined up around this country 
to get their hands on an iPhone X when it came out. I mean, these people were lined up down the street and waited for hours because they had to have an iPhone X that day. And you want to tell me that technology is not a god to many? Technology that, yes, it's wonderful, yes, it's convenient, but boy, does it create a sense of dependence. Boy, does it allow us to be even, allow us to be controlled. Boy, does it compromise our freedom. Yet we're too blind to see it because we worship technology as, as a god. And here God mocks that technology when a boil breaks out on those boasting the pinnacle of human technology. We look at the second vial. The sea has turned the blood. More than anything else, the sea is a symbol of human mobility. Even today, it's by way of the sea that the ships transport goods all over the planet. Many of the things we enjoy in our homes and our refrigerators are there or in our driveways are there because they've been shipped on a boat across the ocean. I was recently out in California visiting a friend in San Pedro. Uh, and out his window, we could look at the harbor there, the, the, the harbor of Los Angeles, whereby a lot of the barges come in carrying these containers. These large boxcar-sized containers come in on these barges from Asia, stacked and stacked hundreds of them. And they're offloaded there in Los Angeles and put right on the trucks. And they're driven across the country and delivered ultimately to our homes. If it weren't for the mobility of the seas, we couldn't enjoy half the things we have here. When God pours out His vial of judgment on the sea and turns it to blood and all living souls in the sea die, and it reeks as the blood of a dead man. This is God's mocking and insulting of the God of human mobility. Something we think we're so entitled to nowadays. We'll just go anywhere we want to go. Do whatever we want to do, however we want to do it. God's going to throw a monkey wrench into that God of human mobility. What you take for granted is going to be taken from those still living at this time. The third vial, the rivers are turned to blood. It's turned to blood so that those who lust for blood are given blood to drink. Those who have shed the blood of innocence are given blood to drink. When I think of the shedding of innocent blood, I think of what Americans boast in. They boast in their free choice. We boast in a woman's choice and that's manifested in the aborting and the slaughter of 4,000 innocent unborn children every day in this country. Millions going back, going back to that hellish Supreme Court decision by wicked people, wicked empty robes, who, has the, who have the blood of these on their hands. When God pours out His vial on the rivers and gives men blood to drink, he is mocking the God of human choice. And he's revealing what choice, choice. I have power over my own body. It's my choice. He gives them blood to drink. He mocks that God. That God of human choice can't save you in a day of judgment. And those of you who lust for blood, and those of you that have the blood of unborn children on your hands will be given blood to drink because you deserve it. Then we've got 
the fourth vial, scorching heat from the sun. This is God's insult of human pride, the God of human pride. We boast in global warming. Man is the cause of global warming. Junk science, propaganda. All of this talk about all oh, the combustion engine and factories and all of this is, has caused the earth to warm up a fraction of a degree in a hundred years. And oh my goodness, we've got to get rid of the cars. We've got to get rid of this. We've got to pay carbon taxes. Man is responsible. What arrogance, what pride to think that we can control this, what only the sun what only the moon, what only the stars, what only the God that made them can control. Man talks about global warming. This is all junk science meant to take your money and meant to control you and meant to drive you to give up your liberty and your freedom. It's garbage. These fools that are touting this junk science wouldn't know science if it slapped them in the face. There's been warming periods. There's been ice ages even since the time of Noah's flood. You don't need millions of years for it to be so. There have been warming trends that far surpass what we've supposedly seen today. Long before men even invented a combustible engine. People don't care about that. It's all about the agenda. It's all about controlling you. It's all about a one world government. It's all about antichrist. And God's going to mock that God of human pride and arrogance that thinks it can actually control the temperature of the planet by its actions. You boast in global warming, God's going to give you some global warming. Not a fraction of a degree spread out over months and years, but a turning up of the dial. Many degrees, scorching heat. This is a mockery of the human pride that would say man has the power to warm the planet. Fifth vial, darkness. Darkness that results in men gnawing their tongues for pain like a bunch of cave trolls, like a bunch of polywogs. Man, the pinnacle of evolution. Man and his technology, his artificial intelligence, his microchips, his Messiah, the Antichrist, the pinnacle of human evolution, reduced in a moment to polywogs gnawing their tongues for pain. Reduced in a moment to Australopithecines sitting around chewing their tongues and cursing God. This vial, my friends, is a mockery of the modern man's God of evolution, the false God of evolution. Man who claims and boasts in his evolving from ancient man. He thinks he's smarter than everybody else that lived before because he's got an iPhone in his pocket even though he wouldn't even know how to cook a meal for himself. Wouldn't even know what to do if the power went out for a week. Talks about being smarter than people that discovered things and built pyramids and that migrated across the planet that wrote down human languages. 
boasts in his evolution, thinks he's better and knows better than everyone else. The modern day Christian in many cases thinks he's so much smarter than those that went before. Shameful. And with God's judgment here at the fifth volley, throws a monkey wrench into that evolutionary God. All this talk about man evolving over millions of years, here, God turns it on its rear end and in an instant man devolves back to a bunch of cave trolls gnawing their tongues like dumb little Australopithecus afarenses, dumb little Lucys in their caves, cursing God. With the sixth vial, we have a gathering. The wicked armies of the world are gathered to a place appointed Armageddon. This is God's mockery and insult of them. Modern man's false god of human freedom. Men don't even have the freedom to stay away from Armageddon. They're gathered there, they go there anyway, and they're overthrown. And then with the seventh vial, we have hail and an earthquake tells us that the great city is divided into three parts and all the cities of the earth fall in this moment. Last of all, the last vial, God mocks and insults the false God of human progress that we worship here in this country, that even the Jews in Israel today worship. All the progress they've made in Israel since 1948, all the skyscrapers, all the buildings, all the discoveries, you see it's all being built up. It's God's blessing. It's proof that God's not done with Israel. It's proof that the Bible is true. But it's all going to be taken away in a moment. And, it's a, and all of that's going to have to be taken away to wake the people up. Tells us in Hosea that Messiah would come and then he would go back to his place until his people acknowledge their transgression and call for him. The great transgression of Israel is they missed their Messiah. Everything's been built up by God's blessing. But he's going to take it away in the tribulation, all that progress gone, and it's going to bring Israel to her utter end where she'll recognize her transgression and praise God she will call for Messiah. And then and only then can he come with his saints to redeem her. And that's what we see at Armageddon. Human progress, though, in a moment is overthrown. That false God in whom so many put their trust is overthrown in a moment with an earthquake. See, when God judges the world, He doesn't just judge, He mocks and insults the false gods upon whom or in whom men put their trust. With this, we'll talk more about the sixth and seventh vials later, but with these vile judgments that are not just attacks or, or, or the wrath of God on the world, but the wrath of God, the mockery, the insulting of the false gods of modern man, with this fifth vile darkness, again, we have nothing new here. This is just the Holy Spirit's commentary on what's already been recorded in the Old Testament in Joel chapter 2. The day of the Lord is spoken of as a day of clouds and of thick darkness. Here we have thick darkness poured out on the seat of the beast. Darkness that can be felt to such an extent that men gnaw their tongues in pain. Jesus summarizes this darkness in Mark 13. The progression from the fifth to the seventh vial. The coming of Christ at Armageddon. This is all summarized by Jesus Himself and His Olivet Discourse. 
We've talked extensively about the map of the tribulation we can find in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. You can find it in Mark 13 and in Matthew chapter 24. And it's also in the Gospel of Luke in uh, chapter 21. But in Mark 13, here I'm going to just excuse the noise of the page flipping here. In Mark 13, verses 24 through 26, but in those days after that tribulation, so after most of the tribulation which we are now, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. With great power and glory. So here we have... What Jesus summarizes in Mark 13, expounded upon in Revelation, the progression from the fifth seal, darkness, through the seventh seal, a great shaking, and then chapter 19, the coming of the white horse rider in Revelation 19. Great power and glory with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. New Testament's just commentary on the old. Revelations just commentary on the things Jesus himself preached. I mean, Jesus told his apostles before he left this world that he would bring everything to their remembrance and that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would also reveal unto them things to come. Why do we want to lift up the red letters in the Gospels over the rest of the New Testament when Jesus said the apostles would write down everything they remembered and they would prophesy by the Holy Spirit concerning things to come. These words in Revelation have just as much authority as any red letter in the Gospel. As does any letter, any word, any verse in the Old Testament. It's all God's Word. We need to remember the immediate audience to whom each book was written. Not every book was written directly to the church. Oh, the church can make application for sure. The apostles of Paul were written to the church to tell us how to conduct ourselves in this church age. We need to quit camping out in Ephesians chapter 1 or camping out in the Sermon on the Mount and ignoring what's been written to us, the church, specifically. Praise God there's application that can be made in any scripture. You can't deny the original audience. I believe the darkness here with this fifth vial is not the sun being extinguished, not the heat of, not the sun that's intensified with the fourth vial being extinguished, not the moon being extinguished, not the stars literally going out. I believe it's related to a cloud covering. The sun is strengthened to its millennial state that wicked men can't handle with the fourth vial. They're given a taste of the glory that is to come and then it's taken away. It's taken away by a great cloud covering. When the Bible speaks of the darkness that surrounds God, the darkness that comes from God in the Old Testament, it's often paired with the imagery of thick clouds. In Psalm 97, the psalmist says that clouds and thick darkness surround God's throne. They're the foundation of His throne. In Exodus 14, verse 20, we're told that a cloud of darkness separated the children of Israel from the approaching Egyptians there on the banks of the Red Sea. 
Deuteronomy 4 and 5, Moses reminds the people at the second giving of the law to the new generation that at Sinai, the mountain was covered in clouds of thick darkness. Let's look at Zephaniah. Very little book in the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Book rarely preached from. The book Prophet Zechariah's description of God would throw many of your caricatures on their rear end. Those of you that claim God and you speak of Him as if He's your buddy or your homeboy or as if He's some sky fairy or genie in a bottle that exists to make your dreams come true. The prophet Zephaniah. Thus saith the Lord is written in this little book. And the Lord spoken of here is very different than what many of you conceive God to be because your image of God is not based on His Word. It's based upon your own lust and pleasures. You've created an idol in your own mind to serve your own lust and pleasures. But Zephaniah says this in chapter 1 verse 14 and verses 14 and 15. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Oh yeah, he's crying bitterly there in Revelation 16. Not a cry of repentance, but a cry of blaspheme, blasphemy, cursing, bitter crying. That day, the great day of the Lord, is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness and then verse 17 and I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh is the dung so here we have the very same time period being described in Zephaniah that we're talking about in Revelation 16 men who are walking as blind men in darkness gnawing their tongues for pain And this day is spoken of as clouds and thick darkness. I believe the fifth vial will be related to a thick darkness that comes from a cloud covering that's poured out upon the world. We're told the target of this darkness is the seat of the beast. The seat of the beast. It says... The fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast and his kingdom was full of darkness. That word translated seat comes from the Greek word from which we get our word in English, throne. This darkness is poured out on the throne of the beast just like it was poured out upon the seat of Pharaoh. And from there it spreads out over the worldwide kingdom of Antichrist. This won't be thick clouds out of the west like an approaching storm. It won't be clouds out of the south like from the outer bands of a hurricane. But out of the epicenter of Antichrist and spreading in all directions outward. Friends, this won't be the weather of the world. This will not be the weather of the world. From the epicenter of spiritual darkness at that time, the seat of the beast, a physical darkness that can be felt will spread outward over his entire kingdom. 
Will this be the whole earth? We know that the last kingdom is a worldwide kingdom. There we go with that foam again. I'm going to hit decline. I'm sorry for the interruption. I don't have this problem when I'm standing behind a pulpit just recording my message on a Sunday morning. Will this be over the whole earth? I'm not really sure. The kingdom of the beast will be a worldwide kingdom, but even by this time in the tribulation, Daniel tells us that Antichrist is troubled. He's troubled. Tidings are coming out of the east and out of the north of approaching armies, and they're all going to be gathered. There are people in rebellion and armies in rebellion against him. We're going to learn about the kings of the east with the sixth vial. So is it the whole earth? I don't know. It's over the kingdom of the beast. By this time, however, the uh, uh, frontiers of his kingdom are crumbling. So I don't know. It's It's a darkness that spreads outward from his seat over his kingdom. Where is this seat of the beast by this point in the tribulation? I think we can find the answer in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is an amazing chapter. The prophecy is so detailed concerning the future, event, future events that have been shown to be fulfilled exactly as it was written in extra biblical history that some have tried to say there were two Daniels. One that wrote before these things and one that wrote many years later. It's foolishness. No, it was just Daniel writing history in detail ahead of time under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, proving that he was a prophet of God, doing what the Quran has never been able to do. I mean, you you shouldn't put the word prophecy in Quran in the same sentence, just like you shouldn't put the word holy in Quran in the same sentence. Anything the Quran prophesies is just restating what was already written in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament. But in Daniel chapter 11, what happens is we begin with prophecy concerning the kingdom of Persia and then moving into the third Gentile kingdom, the kingdom of Greece, starting with Alexander. And then it talks about the dividing of his kingdom into four kingdoms that was fulfilled in history at the death of Alexander the Great with his four generals. And then the focus zeroes in upon two of those four kingdoms that are pretty... uh, instrumental in terms of Israel's history over the next few hundred years. It zeroes in upon the king of the south, which is the uh, the Ptolemite kingdom, descended from Alexander's general Ptolemy, and the king of the north, which is the kingdom of the Seleucids, descended from Alexander's general Seleucus. And over a period, a long period of time, Israel would be caught in the crosshairs between the conflicts and the wars of the kings of the north with the kings of the south. And Daniel traces all of these things through uh, the entire chapter. And then we get down to verse 34 and suddenly the prophecy telescopes from B.C. time period, you know, about 180 B.C. telescopes all the way into the future to the time of Antichrist. A lot of times Old Testament prophecy will telescope and it's very clear when it does, just like it does in Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 weeks. We know there's a gap between the 69 and 70 week because it, the clue is there. It's, it's clearly stated here in verse 35. It's talking about... Uh, 
a king um, of the north, uh, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was persecuted uh, the Jews terribly. It was out of this period that the Maccabees arose and when the, when the tradition of Hanukkah began, when God did a miracle there in the temple. And um, we jump from Antiochus into the future of Antichrist. It says, talks about uh, people doing exploits. These are the Maccabees. Now, when they shall fall, thou shalt be help, helping with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them, to purge, and to make them white, even to the time of the end. So now we go to the time of the end. Here's the telescoping. Because it is yet for a time appointed. And the king, that is the king at the time of the end, shall do according to his will and will exalt himself. And this goes on to describe uh, Antichrist. And it's funny because you get to verse 40 and at the time of the end, so we're at the time of the end here, shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of the north. So this can't be talking about him. The Seleucids were the kings of the north. But this king at the time of the end is not the king of the north and he's not the king of the south. These are pushing at him. The king of the north will come against him. And then it says in verse 41, he shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. And you go down to verse 45, and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. At this end, this king, this antichrist, rebellious kings are pushing at him and it says that he will plant his palace, the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Where is that? What glorious holy mountain is between two seas? It's Zion, the site of the Jewish temple, the place where Messiah will come and reign. Antichrist will plant his seat there between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. That's the seat of the beast. There's Jerusalem, the world capital. At that time. That's where this darkness is poured out. And it spreads from there. This darkness is poured out over the false Messiah. Upon whom many Jews actually thought he was Messiah. Till he betrays them. And with this darkness poured out on Jerusalem. And spreading out from there. Just like it did one other time in world history. Undoubtedly, many Jews that remain are going to start to wake up and realize they're going to equate what's happening then with what happened in Jerusalem many, many years before. Darkness pouring out there and spreading out. And they're going to wake up. And they're going to realize they made a terrible mistake that Yeshua is indeed the Messiah and they're going to call for Him. And He's going to come. says in verse 44, when the Antichrist plants his temple on the holy mount between the seas, that tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he's going to get angry and go out and destroy as much as he can. The devil knows what's coming. That's what he does. So he goes out and try to destroy as much as he can. Tidings out of the east. We're going to see this 
at a time when tidings are out of the east that trouble the Antichrist. We're going to see this with the sixth vial, the drying up of the river Euphrates so that the way of the kings of the east can be prepared. Again, Revelation is nothing new. It's just commentary on what's already been written. It's not an allegory. It's not a deep, dark mystery. It's commentary on what's been written already in the Old Testament. It's amazing to me that some of these so-called reformed pastors and some of these replacement theology blowhards out here, some of them preach the gospel. Praise God, they preach it as it is in truth. They're bold on the streets. They, they defend the Word of God. They get into the apologetics and they argue for the authority of Christ. They argue for the truth of the gospel by making an appeal to Old Testament prophecy as concerns the first coming of Christ and show how these prophecies were literally fulfilled. 48 details of Christ's life fulfilled at His coming. Therefore, He's the Christ and appealing to the literal fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament regards Christ's first coming. But when it comes to His second coming, they want to tell us it's all an allegory. They want to tell us it's a dark mystery we can't even understand. And many of them don't have the guts to even take a position on the coming to Christ. They just want to talk about some general judgment. Even though the book of Revelation says, blessed are those that read and understand this book. We're, those of us that read and understand it are promised a blessing. You're going to tell me we can't understand it? How is it that every prophecy at Christ's first coming is fulfilled literally, but everything as relates to His second coming is a spiritual dark mystery, an allegory, something else, or was fulfilled in history? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's where we're at. We're at as a church today. It's sad, sad, sad. Daniel eleven forty five, in the context of telling us where the seat of the beast will be, says, "Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him." Antichrist, as powerful as he is, as much destruction as he reaps, as many as he deceives as powerful of a superman he is for the dragon, for Satan. He will come to his end quickly. It says in another place he'll be broken without hand. Christ won't even have to lay a hand on him. He'll be cast alive into a lake of fire. He will come to his end and none of his followers, none of his armies, none of the people he's deceived will be able to help him. Yeah, that's what happens with wicked, powerful people. You know, they come... They virtue signal, they virtue posture, they get followers, they stir up, foment hatred in this country. They pass their liberal policies. They tout freedom and choice. They tout health care. They tout abortion. They pick classes against each other. They seem to have so much power, so much influence, but then the end comes. Death comes knocking. And nobody can help them. And they're soon forgotten. Happens time and time and time again. Lesson after lesson after lesson. And we still don't learn. We still try to hold on to earthly power that's fleeting. As for Antichrist, so for those that serve Him now. So for those who have tapped into His wicked spirit and bought into it. So do those that have sold their souls to the spirit of Antichrist for power and glory. Their end will be just like his. An end in which no one can help him. Think about that fool Ted Kennedy. So much power, so much money, so much influence. Got away with murdering a young lady, driving her into a lake. 
got away with it, scot-free, talented health care and all of this garbage, all these liberal social justice causes. And then he got brain cancer and he just died like that. Gone. And now he's forgotten. Not even talked about anymore. You know, the same thing's going to happen for that devil witch Hillary Clinton. Same thing's going to happen with John McCain, that liar. I can't believe I voted for that dirtbag. I can't believe I voted for him. What a liar. Man has inoperable brain cancer. Doesn't fear God. He continues to lie to the American people. Get up there and try to train wreck everything our president tries to do. What a liar. But he's going to come to his end pretty soon. And he'll be forgotten. All these Hollywood pedophiles, their sin's going to find them out. They're going to come to their end and none will be able to help them. Think of that fool, that fool Snoop Doggy Dog. What a fool. That man released an album recently called Making America Crip Again. Of course, that's a reference to a gang an influential black gang called the Crips. And it, on the album cover or on something that he posted on his Instagram, I don't know, shows him standing over the dead body, a dead body with a blue cup in his hand. The Crip color's blue and tied around the tag of the toe of this dead body upon whom is draped an American flag. It actually looks like a Confederate flag. is a t- body tag that says Trump on it. Snoop Dogg hovering over the dead body of of, of President Trump drinking out of a blue cup. Make America Crip again. What a fool. He may as well be wearing a, a KKK hood. So foolish, so stupid, he doesn't even realize that he's just been a tool of greater and more powerful forces that want to get the, youth, the black youth of this country to buy into the gangster mentality. To buy into that gangster mentality and then be at war with one another and destroy one another and fill up the prisons and ultimately destroy themselves. The same spirit that wants to convince the black moms to go abort their babies so they can extinguish the black race. I mean, the woman, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was open openly boasted of these things as abortion of abortion as being a means to extinguish a black race. And fools like Snoop Dogg in, 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 in criticizing the president and doing stupid things like this don't even realize that what he's doing is against his own people. And the only ones that care about his own people he mocks. What a fool. Too dumb to even recognize that he's just a pawn. This whole gangster mentality thing that was foisted upon the black youth of this country to encourage black-on-black crime and black-on-black violence was the work of spiritual wickedness in high places. And people like Snoop Dogg are too blind to even see it. He's a fool. Shame on any Christian that listens to that garbage. I mean, this guy's supposedly a role model. This is the day we live in when fools like this, who ought to be investigated by the Secret Service for putting out pictures like this, in a sense, threatening the life of the president. They're role models now. Oh, there's so little hope for this country. So little hope. I don't know why I got off on that.
tangent. It's easy to do when I'm sitting behind a desk. This message is going on two hours now. That's all right, and I want to keep going. I think of a song written by Shailen. It's it's a song that talks about all these powerful people that have come and gone and met their end, just like Antichrist, Satan's Superman, will meet his end. And yet, Jesus is alive. One of the verses says, Napoleon is dead. Lao Tzu is dead. Che Guevara and Henry VIII, they're dead. Saddam Hussein is dead. However, Jesus is alive. One day it'll be said, Antichrist is dead. The dragon is dead. The false prophet is dead. The wicked are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Revelation 16, verse 10 Part B, the latter half of this verse, his kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain. That verb gnawed comes from the Greek verb that literally means to squeeze, just like you'd squeeze juice out of an orange or squeeze water out of a sponge or wring it out of a dirty wash rag. I, 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 I see this imagery here, this gnawing of tongues for pain, and I'm reminded of a Civil War soldier after a battle. On the surgeon's table, they put a stick in his mouth so he can bite down and gnaw on this stick to alleviate the pain while they saw off his arm with a hacksaw or saw off his leg. Men, because of the sores and the blood and the burns and the darkness, are just going to gnaw their tongues for pain. Chewing their tongues to escape. Just like Australopithecines that they boast they're descended from. Cave trolls with no intelligence. The pinnacle of so-called man-made evolution and all his technology, all his pride, all his arrogance, all his globalism, all his social justice, and an instant is back to a cave troll. You want to claim you you came from a cave troll? You came from an Australopithecine? God's going to say, ah, I'll show you otherwise. I'll, I'll put you, I'll, I'll, devo, I'll devolve you in an instant. Back to the Bible or back to the caves, my friend. Human evolution turned upside down when men gnaw on their tongues for pain. Turn to Jonah, prophet Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. Now where Jonah was spit out by the whale, the great fish, which is history, by the way, not a fairy tale, Nineveh was three days away. So three days journey from where he was spit out. But it says Jonah began to enter the city a day's journey. The Lord put a fire under his rear end and he got to Nineveh in one day when it should have took him three days. There was a little bit of a miracle there. Jonah began to enter. It's amazing what a man will do when God puts a fire under his rear end. It's amazing how fast he'll move. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Hellfire and brimstone preaching, friends. Wasn't some little sermonette for Christianettes. It wasn't about the love. It wasn't all about the love. Hellfire and brimstone. Verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't believe in God. They believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. 
For word came into the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. God didn't change his mind. He changed his way. The judgment for Nineveh came 150 years later. The prophet Nahum would later prophesy of this, but at the repentance of the people of Nineveh to God's judgment and hellfire and brimstone preaching, he delayed that judgment, changed his way, and didn't do it at that time. Is this the humility and the repentance we're going to see from the people of the earth after this judgment of darkness in which they're gnawing on their tongues for pain? No, it's not! It won't be the repentance and humility of the king of Nineveh. Oh, that there were one politician in this country today that would respond to God's judgment on this country like the king of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh. But there's not a one. And there won't be a one on the earth when the darkness comes and they gnaw their tongues for pain. No, it's the opposite. It says here, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Opposite. Diametric opposite of the response of the people of Nineveh at the hellfire and brimstone preaching of Jonah. What's interesting about this is that this is the last reference in the book of Revelation to man's failure to repent. It's not the last time it says man blasphemed God, but it's the last time it even mentions that they failed to repent. Back in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, to the, uh, the letter to the church at Thyatira, it was given space to repent, and we're told that she did not repent. After the sixth trumpet judgment, we're told that men failed to repent of their idolatries, failed to repent of their whoredoms and witchcrafts and their blasphemies. And in here we're told that men failed to repent. They blasphemed God and failed to repent. After this point in Revelation, we're told like we are in verse 21 that men continue to blaspheme God, but it's no longer mentioned that they failed to repent. I don't believe that this is unimportant. I think it shows us that after this point, there's no more place. There's not even an opportunity for or a hypothetical possibility of repentance. The world is at a place with this fifth vile judgment that there is no more remedy. Nothing can be done. By this point, all that remain in terms of the righteous or the remnant of Israel, those witnesses that meet Christ on the rubble there, gathered like the troops were gathered to Iwo Jima there when He comes back, the few of Israel, one-third living in the land, 
that'll call for him. But by this time, I don't believe there's even any tribulation saints left. I think they've all been martyred. They're all in heaven on that churned up sea of glass, watching as God takes vengeance on the world for their blood that was shed. There's no opportunity left on the planet for repentance at this time. No one else will be saved. There's no remedy. I'm reminded of the fact that there comes a place in this life when the opportunity to repent, the place for repentance runs out. And it's not necessarily at death, my friends. It can yet be when a man is alive. It can yet be when a nation is around. I think of what is written about Israel in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36, with the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, with the Babylonian captivity, it says here, God, it's written, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised His words and misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees. Israel came to a place in their history where there was no remedy. There was no more place for repentance. As for Israel in those days, so will be for the world in the days of the fifth vile judgment. No longer mention that men fell to repent because they can't repent. They've been given up by God. As for Israel in those days, so for the fake church of today, there comes a point when there's no remedy. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 11, we're told by Paul that what was written concerning Israel in the Old Testament was written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. They were written as a warning to us, an example to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. We Gentile Christians need to be, and you reformers out there, you replacement theologians who boast in your knowledge, I wouldn't trust you to execute, exegete John 11.35 properly. Jesus wept. You start, you want to be, when you're critical, you, you be critical of the Jewish people for rejecting Jesus, for rejecting God's word, rejecting their Messiah. We need to be real careful when we start criticizing these people and acting as if there's no point in even witnessing to them because they've rejected Christ. When we start criticizing them, how could they miss Jesus? It was so plain in the Scriptures. We need to be careful criticizing the Jew and we need to take a long, hard look in the mirror, my friend. We need to take a long, hard look in the mirror. You see, the Jews were told by God. They were told by God in the Word of God, by the prophets. And they rejected it. But my friends, we have not only been told by God, we've been shown by God. Shown who God is and what He does and how He judges sin and what He blesses in the history of Israel recorded by us. They were told by God. They rejected His Word. We've been told and we've been shown and yet we neglect His Word. Who's worse? Who's worse? To whom much is given, much is required. We need to be real careful with that critical spirit of the Jewish people and take a long, hard look in the mirror, church. A long, hard look in the mirror. 
there comes a time when people can even seek repentance with tears and it's not there. Esau sought repentance with tears and he couldn't find it. He despised his birthright. He virtue signaled left and right and there was no place for repentance in his life. All these people virtue signaling today about social justice and all this mess on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. For many of them, there is no place of repentance. They can seek everything and cry and whine about sex trafficking and racism and all this stuff, but there's no place of repentance. The virtue signaling means nothing. If you follow the progression of Romans chapter 1, it's very interesting in describing the wickedness of man. Romans 1 is very plain, very clear about the abomination of homosexuality and lesbianism. Tra- uh, transgender is very clear. You've got to be blind and stupid not to see it. But look at the progression in Romans 1. I'm not going to get into it in detail, but in verse 24, we're taught, it's told that God gave them up. God gave them up. I'll flip there real quick. Romans chapter 1. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which is mean. If you, if, you don't, if you can't see that's talking about homosexuality, like I said, you're blind and stupid. Homosexuality, according to God, is not an alternative lifestyle. It's not love. It's men burning in their lust one for another and doing what is unseemly and vile and wicked. God gave them up. God gave them up. But when we get down to verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. When God finally gives you over to a reprobate mind, there is no more opportunity for repentance. It's gone. And my friends, you know, we as Christians in our finite human perspective can talk about as long as there's breath in the body, there's an opportunity to be saved. And praise God from our finite human perspective, we can see it that way. But from God's eternal perspective, there comes a time when people are given over. And once they're given over, there's no more opportunity to repent. By this point in the tribulation with the fifth vial, this is the last mention of man's failure to repent because the entire human race, except for the Jewish remnant that remains, maybe a smattering of tribulation saints, even though I believe they've already been martyred. The rest of the human race have been given over, not just given up, but given over to reprobate mind, and all that's coming is judgment. There may be those that are not, those that shelter and help and shield the Jew during the persecutions of the Antichrist as is referred to in Jesus' parable, the sheep and the goats. But in large part, the entire world that remains that survived has been given over. Homosexuals are dangerously close to being given over if you read the progression here in Romans 1. God gives up, He gives up, and then He gives over. And that's a dangerous place to be. Not just for the people of the planet in Revelation 16, not just as it was for Israel, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, but as much so 
for the wicked people of today, this nation of today, and the church of today. Dangerous place to be. Many today have been given up. Many that claim the name of Christ and not a few have been given over. And to these we preach. And our preaching glorifies God not unto their salvation but unto their condemnation. But pray, and praise God we don't see it. There are things I'm glad we don't see it like God sees it. We couldn't handle it. Praise God we have a limited finite perspective and we've been told to go into all the world and preach the gospel and every creature. We don't know if a man's been given up or given over. We can have clues, but we don't know for sure. God knows. Doesn't mean we shouldn't preach the gospel because Christ is glorified whether He's received or, or rejected. He's glorified in salvation and in condemnation. But my friends, I don't know about you, in this, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss when it comes to knowing whether or not a man's been given up or given over. I'll let God retain that knowledge and I'll trust Him. And whatever He says and does is, does is righteous. But there's coming a time in the, in, in, in the future when the whole world's been given over. And it's too late. Praise God, that's not that day. John Walford was a, a uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote very good commentaries on the book of Books of Daniel and Revelation. He was a great prophecy teacher. He died some years ago. Great dispensationalist. In his commentary on Revelation, which is one of my favorites, I've got it here in my office. It's a treasure, just like Clarence Larkin's books. Just like uh, the uh, all the sermons of Charles Spurgeon I've got printed in a 20-volume set here. Just like uh, a lot of Peter Ruckman's books, and uh, man, I've got some good stuff here. I've been blessed to get or to inherit. But uh, John Walvert's commentary, I, I love it. He says this in the context of these verses here in chapter sixteen: the Scriptures plainly refute the notion that wicked men will quickly repent when faced with catastrophic warnings and acts of judgment. With con when confronted with the righteous judgment of God, their blasphemy is deepened and their evil purpose is accentuated. Amen. That's a sad commentary on the human condition. Mankind is basically good. Are you kidding me? Here they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. People today blaspheme God when they blame God for the death of a loved one. If God was so loving, why would He take my husband or my wife? Do you actually think you're the only person that's lost a husband and wife in history? And you're going to blame God? That's blasphemy. You're blaming God for what is the result of human sin. Doesn't mean we can't cry out to God. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle with doubts. But to blame God and to say that the death of one person... Is proof there's no living God? That's foolishness. That's blasphemy. That's the human condition. I think about America. I think about that eclipse that literally eclipsed our country from coast to coast some months ago. After that, we had Harvey and Irma and Jose, the hurricanes, the Las Vegas shooting, the tornadoes that ripped through here a few weeks ago, the terrorist attack in 
New York City, the largest terrorist attack, second only to 9-11 up in New York. And then just yesterday, the largest church mass shooting in the history of this country. All of these have followed like dominoes right after that eclipse. Eclipse historically is a warning of God's judgment. And yet these events are quickly forgotten. And the country doesn't repent. Its blasphemy is deepened. The seeds of what's written here in Revelation 16 are already sown today. It's at the doors. My friends, I believe America's finished. America is finished. You know, it's nice to talk about MAGA or make America great again. But friends, the country's finished. We're under his judgment. We're under the judgment of confusion of face, the same judgment God put upon Israel that Daniel mentions. We can't even make decisions as a country that benefit our country. We make decisions that we think will benefit us, but any sane person will see that it does the opposite. Take, for example, this visa lottery program that was foisted on the American people behind our backs a decade ago. The fools in Congress that pushed this thing actually thought that putting a lottery out there that allowed third world people to just get a free pass to come to this country. These people actually thought this would benefit our nation. They actually thought it would because they're confused and they're they're under God's judgment. And what has instead resulted is we've brought the third world into this country and it's become the third world. We brought people into this country that will not assimilate. They bring their diseases. They bring their fallen cultures. They bring their devil's religions. They bring their terrorism. They bring their sense of entitlement. They get in here and they suck the coffers dry. A diversity visa. I've known about this for a while. I've seen the Nepalis lined up in lines in Kathmandu. Like a lottery, like a lottery ticket to try to get a free pass to America on a taxpayer's dime. In Bangladesh, the government just started going through the phone book throwing names out there. And the politicians that were behind this actually thought this would benefit the country. That's a sad, dangerous place to be. People actually think diversity is good for this country because they're blind. They're under God's judgment. And I've said it once, I'll say it again. When you start messing with God's word, which this country has done since it kicked God out of the schools and the Bible out of the schools, you start messing with his word, he'll mess with your mind. And when he messes with your mind, you can't even tell the difference between right and wrong and blessing and cursings. In a saner time, the congressmen and the government officials who were involved with this diversity visa program done behind the backs of the American people, in a saner time, saner people would have these Officials, these congressmen, tried for treason. And if found guilty, they'd be executed. They'd be hung from a lamppost. That's what should happen in saner times to the people that foisted this garbage behind on us, behind our backs. But we don't live in sane times, my friends. We don't live in sane times. I praise God that Trump was elected back in November, not because I think he's a bastion of righteousness, not because I think he's a believer, and not because I think that what he does is necessarily right, but praise God, he could have given us the devil witch. He's given us respite. He sent us warnings 
even since that election in the last year, but we're not waking up. And therefore, I I kind of think this make America great again stuff, all this pitting of conservatives against liberals, it's not the triumph of nationalism. It's not going to be the triumph of populism. It's not going to be the triumph of conservatism. I'm afraid it's an ambushment from the Lord. I'm afraid it's an ambushment from God to turn us on each other so that we'll destroy each other. Just like what happened in 2 Chronicles 20 to the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites <coughs> who came together in alliance to overthrow King Jehoshaphat and the kingdom of Judah. And God turned them on each other at the singing of praises by the, by the, the Jews on the cliffs. The Ammonites and the Moabites, they turned on Edom. And destroyed him. And then they turned on each other and destroyed each other so that none escaped. And it's referred to as an ambush from the Lord. I think what we have going on here is not a return to conservatism. It's an ambushment of God. A judgment that divides this country and turns and will, and will turn on each other. Destroy each other. That's what I'm afraid. America's finished. But the church is here. And while the church is here, it's a restrainer of evil. Praise God, it's a restrainer of evil. There's a who and a what that restrains evil. As evil as that was in Sutherland, Texas yesterday, evil is still restrained. When evil's no longer restrained, you think yesterday was bad. You wait till you see what's coming. There's a who, the Holy Spirit, and a what, the church that restrains evil by its presence right now because the church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the true church. I'm not talking about the fake church. But when that's taken out of the way, then Antichrist comes and you will see evil abound. I don't believe America will ever be great again, but I believe there's a restraint on evil. And the longer that lasts, the more hope there is for the lost. You mess with God's Word, He'll mess with your mind. God warned Israel in Deuteronomy 38 that you mess with this promise, this covenant, you refuse to keep my laws and my statutes, you turn to other gods, so shall thou be mad or insane for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. As to Israel, so to us here in America. We are mad with insanity in this country. Darkness poured out upon the seat of the beast and covering his kingdom, that seat being in Jerusalem. When was the last time darkness was poured out upon Jerusalem and then covered the whole earth? It was from noon to 3 p.m. on the 14th of Nisan, A.D. 30. Luke tells us that Jesus Christ, when He gave up the ghost, that I'm, I'm sorry, not when He gave up the ghost, that was at the end, but while He hung on the cross, there was darkness over the whole earth. Amos prophesied of these things. Amos chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in a clear day, and I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only sun, and the end thereof is a bitter day. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
This is amazing prophecy on Israel. There would be a day when the sun would be darkened at noon. And then a feast would turn into mourning like the morning of an only son. And then following this morning would be a great famine in the land. A great famine upon Israel, upon the Jewish people. Not for food or for water. Not for lack of bread, but a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. And the people would wander from sea to sea and from north to the east, running to and fro to find the word of the Lord and not find it. That's the history of Israel from the crucifixion of Christ to now, written beforehand. The sun was darkened at noon. The feast of Passover, the day upon which Christ was crucified, was turned into mourning. As of an only son, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, was crucified. And then after that has come a period of famine where the Jewish people, by and large, the ones who said His blood be upon us and our children, have wandered about to and fro all over the earth looking for the Word of God and they can't find it. They can't even understand it. They spend hours and hours in the yeshiva studying the Tanakh and they can't even see the plain sense of the Scripture. Can't understand it. Can't see Jesus all over the Old Testament. A famine. And yet God has reserved to himself a remnant. Yet there's an openness to the truth today amongst the Jewish people that hadn't been seen in 2,000 years. God's doing something. The natural branches are bud, budding again. The end is close. But darkness over Jerusalem followed by a famine. Amazing prophecy. And a prophecy that would inevitably result in light coming to the Gentiles. Isaiah chapter 60 speaks of the same thing. Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light and the kings to the brightness of thy rise. And here's what's amazing. Old Testament prophecy always has a shadow fulfillment, many times fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, and then an ultimate fulfillment fulfilled at His second coming. In a period of gross darkness, the light rises. Out of that gross darkness, a light rises that results in Gentiles coming to the light. Results in glory upon Israel. When darkness covered the land, when Christ hung on that cross, out of that darkness came a light. The light of the gospel upon the remnant of Israel. First Christians, first pastors, first churches, first missionaries, all Jewish. New Testament written by all Jews. And then Gentiles, the church, mostly Gentiles, starting with Antioch all the way to the ends of the earth, coming to that light. Fast forward to Revelation, we have gross darkness. Out of that darkness, we will see that the light of Messiah comes. And out of that light, glory to the people of Israel, the remnant of Israel, upon, upon whom the promises will be fulfilled, and the Gentiles, the fruit of their preaching. Those that inhabit the earth during the, the millennium. The saints that rule and reign with Him. The last time darkness covered the whole earth, out of it was light upon Israel and the Gentiles. And the next time darkness covers the whole earth, like with this fifth vial, in the midst of horrible judgment, 
almost at the very end when all seems lost. Out of it will come light upon Israel and upon the Gentiles when Christ the King splits the Mount of Olives, splits the skies and returns. Darkness portends a glorious light. Don't lose heart, my friends, in the darkness. Darkness just means the light is coming because in this life, in this existence, it's not good versus evil. The God we serve, the God of Israel, not the God of the Quran. The God of the Quran is in the Bible. He's the serpent in the Garden of Eden. We're talking about the God of Israel. He doesn't, he's not at war with darkness. He's not at war. It's not a war between light and darkness. There's war between forces of good and forces of evil, but God sits above all that. The Creator's above all that. So much so that Satan and Antichrist himself are spoken of as his, the rods of his judgment. So that means anytime there's darkness, that portends a glorious light. Don't lose heart. The darkness just means the light is coming. The glory is coming. The Messiah is coming. Horrible judgments. I go back to what Clarence Larkin said when discussing these verses in his commentary on Revelation, blessed will those people be who do not live to see this day. Blessed are those believers who were slaughtered yesterday who are now in the presence of the Lord. The Bible tells us in Isaiah that the righteous perish and nobody even stops to consider that God is delivering them from evil days to come. There were believers yesterday in that little Baptist church who were delivered from evil days to come. There are those, the church, who will be delivered. We praise God for that. Don't lose heart, my brethren. The days are dark, but the light cometh. And as you study your Bibles, as we look at prophecy, as you read Revelation, as you cross-reference Scriptures, you need to remember something. The key that opens the Jewish Bible, and make no mistake, our Bible is a Jewish Bible, Old and New Testament. The key that opens the Jewish Bible written by the Jews is the Jews. And the key to the Jew is the coming of Messiah to give to the Jew what belongs to him at the advent. If, you, if we can't get the second coming of Christ right, we'll never get our Bible right. That's why we study these things. That's why I go into such detail with these verses, even the verses of judgment that don't apply to the believer because he's not been appointed to wrath. Great way to be a witness to a Jewish person if you ever have the privilege to meet one is to show them your Bible and to show them how much of your Bible is their Bible. How much of it is the Old Testament. It's more than two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. To show them the foundation upon which the New Testament that they've been told as a Gentile book is, 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 is built. That's an incredible witness. Most Jewish people don't even realize that Christians believe every word of the Old Testament to be the Word of God. And that the New Testament is just a fulfillment of what's already been written. It's a great way to be a witness. I rejoice that God has directed us to make Jewish outreach a primary focus here at Full Proof Gospel Ministries or Zerayim Coal Portage Board, and a big part of that is the distribution of the printed word. In these days concerning which I preach, you know, the printed word will be the only source of truth that's left. 
You know, don't take the Bible you have on your iPhone for granted. The evil forces that be, the spirit of Antichrist and the coming Antichrist can flip that off in a heartbeat. Cherish your printed word. And for those that are left behind, the printed word may be all the only source of truth that's left in these days of great darkness. And it may be the only means whereby people can know the truth and believe upon it. So it's a great privilege for us to distribute God's printed word both to the Jew and to the Gentile. We'll continue to do so. Thank you for your prayers. I pray this uh, message has been a blessing to you. The next time I continue this study at New Testament Christian Fellowship, we will get into the sixth and the seventh vile judgments. And then it'll be that big parenthesis in chapter 17 and 18 concerning the fall of the world system, its religious side and its commercial side. And then we get to the coming of the king, the white horse rider, and the glories of the kingdom. I'm looking forward to getting out of these verses of judgment and talking about the glories of the coming kingdom. Lord God, we thank you for your word that's been preached today. We, I pray, Father, that it would find its way to some hungry soul somewhere on this planet, Lord, that would hear the truth and be encouraged by it. I'm just a servant. Lord, I pray that what has been spoken has been spoken as it is in truth, that you'll give believers who listen to it the ability to discern and to search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Lord, have mercy upon us. And uh, in these days of grave darkness, may we be faithful to preach the gospel and not take for granted the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ, his salvation. Have mercy upon America, Lord. Have mercy upon the families of those believers that were slaughtered yesterday. May they find comfort in the scriptures and not mourn as those that have no hope. Have mercy upon this nation, we pray, and upon our president, Father. Give us one influential politician in Washington that responds to these terrible things as the king of Nineveh responded to the preaching of Jonah. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.